Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. From MDP and Motley Fool Rule Breaker, Simon Erickson. And from Motley Fool Deep Value, Mr. Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Yeah, hey, Chris. We've got the start of the earnings season and the end of Microsoft's phone nightmare. We will dig into the business of baseball with Barry's Verluga from the Washington Post. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with technical glitches. The week in technical glitches, really, guys, because on Wednesday, United Airlines grounded 3,500 flights worldwide due to a computer problem. And if that didn't get Wall Street's attention, on Thursday, the New York Stock Exchange halted trading for four hours due to a technical glitch. Ron, I'll start with you. Uh, New York Stock Exchange, that's kind of a scary headline for investors, but Worse than the actual effect. True, but for me too, I'm walking into the eye doctor and I get a text from our chief investment officer. New York Stock Exchange halted, and I'm like, "Oh great!" (laughs) (laughs) Next, Ron grows. I go into the, I get my eyes checked. I come back out, still halted. Hour later, still halted. Hour later, still halted. But as you say, the first thing is that it's great. It wasn't a cyber attack. At least we hope and we believe it's not a cyber attack. It was a technical glitch. You don't want to see those, but it was a software release, uh, communication broke down, and, and it does happen. What's interesting is that things have evolved in the stock exchanges and the stock markets so much over the years that the New York Stock Exchange really represents only about 20% market share uh, volume nowadays. There are 11 other exchanges, NASDAQ being the one that probably most people have heard of. There are dozens of electronic communication networks like ARCA and Instanet, maybe um, some folks have heard of. So, New York Stock Exchange shutting down isn't the debacle it would have been maybe 10 or 20 years ago, um, but certainly you know, people get a little jittery. Yeah, Jason, I feel like this was probably worse for the professional investors, certainly for the the people out there who continue to day trade despite evidence that it doesn't actually work. But I, 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 you know, <laughs> despite I, that little that little thing right I, there. I just sort of looked at this and I thought, well, I don't have a trade going today. I'm fine. Yeah, it didn't it you know it did not interrupt my day at all. Uh, I, I you know kept on digging into into companies and you know it was interesting you were the eye doctor. I, I was taking my daughters to the dentist that afternoon and we do work, they, I swear folks. Yeah, well this is late in the afternoon. After yeah. the market closed actually. So but the uh, the receptionist at the dentist office was was mentioning the same thing, and I said, "Well, also, did you hear about the United situation?" She's like, "You know, wow, can't we just figure? We can't just rely on computers. You got to know how to do it the old school way, right?" And I think there's something to be said for that because as technology continues to make our lives, uh, in theory, easier, uh, you know, it's worth noting that we depend on this technology in in many many different ways. And and if it fails, not really if, but when it fails, we need to be able to you know understand how to how to deal uh, without it. Perhaps I mean you, you think about things like self driving cars. Okay, I Ooh. mean what happens when the first malfunction occurs there? What happens when a you know a self driving car gets hacked? And 
you know, I think that's probably one of the big hangups with our generation. Perhaps our children will not really have to, you know, see it from that perspective. But I think it just it raises a host of questions as, as far as our dependence on technology uh, goes. Simon, the Wall Street Journal wanted to report the story about the halted trading, but their website was down as well <laughs> at the time, uh, which uh, has got me started to think about maybe it's time for me to invest in cybersecurity. I know you just did a research trip out in Silicon Valley. What'd you find? Well, I think that you hit the right question out of this entire story. Story is how do we make money off of this, right? <laughs> uh, group of investors. I did. I just visited Silicon Valley last week. Uh, one of the companies that really impressed me was FireEye, who's a company that's you know going into cybersecurity, trying to figure out how do you fix this big problem that is that is cybercrime and cyberterrorism. And I think that right now we're kind of in the moment of the oh darn problem. Companies are calling up cybersecurity companies, saying, "Hey, I got hacked. You know, I'm Target, I'm Home Depot, I'm Sony Pictures, whoever it is." And it's kind of a fix the problem that is here and now. But I think the next evolution of this is really more of a subscription model, where over time you've got large cybersecurity companies monitoring the perimeter of what's going on out there and fixing these problems before they actually happen. Let's move over to China, guys, where it's getting pretty ugly. Over the past month, the Shanghai Composite has dropped around 30 percent. The Shenzhen market, which is often compared to the Nasdaq, since it has more tech companies, down nearly forty percent. Uh, Ron, hmm. this headline seems worse <laughs> than the nicey one. You know, but it's not surprising because I think for weeks, if not months, we've been hearing people use that B word, the bubble, um, with re- regards to the stock market. Um, stock market was shooting up just as really the economy was slowing down. Those two things really. Um, that's quite a divergent um, thing that's going on there. So it makes sense to, for, for for a correction of some sort to happen. Um, the steps that the Chinese government um, is taking to kind of combat this, they're not taking it lying down. And some of the steps are, are pretty interesting. Um, some some normal things um, that we see here in the U.S., like cutting interest rates to prop up the economy. Um, but there they have brokerage houses buying billions of dollars worth of stocks. They're relaxing margin requirements in a move that can only be wonderful. They're allowing <laughs> real estate to be an acceptable form of collateral to buy stocks on margin. What could possibly go wrong there? Uh, tons of companies have halted trading in their shares, in the shares. So they're, they're doing their best to kind of stop this free fall here. Um, and does it matter to U.S. investors? Um, most U.S. investors are not directly invested in the Chinese stock market, but um, the economy of China and the China stock market it certainly affects other things like commodities, like consumer spending. Companies like Apple, you've seen in the headlines, sell a lot of product into China. So it certainly does have rippling effects across the world. And Simon, auto sales as well, where the the projections at the beginning of the year, China was going to increase auto sales by about 7%. That's now basically been cut more in half, down to 3%. Yeah, very true, Chris. And just to add on something to what Ron was saying about the incentives the government of of trying to get the middle class, you know, Chinese citizen to invest in the stock market has been effective. Look at this a little bit last month. You know, the equivalent of the NASDAQ over in China uh, through June was up 165% for this year. The average stock list on the exchange had a PE, wait for it, of 140. So, this is starting to sound like, you know, dot-com kind of bubble that we went through in the year 2000. What's interesting is that they've already had kind of a debacle in the real estate and the housing business. And so, people say, well, we can't really make money in housing anymore. Let's put money into the stock market. And that's where we saw a big big run-up, which which probably led to a bubble. I mean, I over the years, I've developed a pretty strong opinion in regard to investing in China. In short, don't. I just don't think it's worth it. Now, I mean, it, there are exceptions to the rule. Okay, you find the market leaders like Baidu, like Alibaba, something like that 
where you know they obviously have a stranglehold on the market there. That's one thing. But when you have a country where the government can just, you know, I'm not saying that you know, we are necessarily much better, but but in you know you have a, a country where a government can just make any call at once at any given time. It's not necessarily a free market. We have so many companies here that give us exposure to that to that to that growth opportunity. They hear all of these all of this talk about Apple and, and cutting back on guidance there. I mean, Apple, you know, 2014, that 15% of their sales came from China. It's going to be more or less less the same for the for the coming years get your exposure to china via big companies like that that we have you know a lot more transparency in our markets here versus having to depend on something in in a country we just we just are not as familiar shares of zillow hit a 52 week low on friday after the online real estate company announced chief financial officer chad cohen is leaving the company to quote Pursue other business interests. You know me, Jason. Anytime the CEO or the CFO leaves abruptly, I find that well intriguing. <laughs> it is. It can be intriguing. I mean, that in theory is is one of the few people who should really know uh, every financial lever in regard to that to that business. And so it, it could be any number of things. I mean, there doesn't appear to be a scandal here. Who knows, really? Uh, I I tend to think that. You know, this is a far different business than it was, you know, ten years ago or so when when he started with Zillow. I mean, they just are rolling up this acquisition of Trulia, and it is just a fundamentally different story now than it than it was a year ago. And maybe this isn't really his cup of tea. Maybe he's not suited for this job for the coming decade. Maybe he just feels like there are better opportunities. Who knows, really? But I do think there are plenty of names out there uh, that would be right for the job. I mean, you look at. The former CFO of, of Trulia, Sean Agarwal, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. I think he would be more than qualified for this job, and I'm certain that they will at least be, uh, you know, reaching out to him to see if if it's something he might be interested in. If you check his LinkedIn profile, I mean, the guy's <laughs> got a pretty pretty good uh, pretty good track record. There. It was almost a year ago that the Trulia deal was announced, and since then, shares of Zillow. Have basically been cut in half. Yeah. Was well, it, was it a mistake? No, I don't think it was a mistake. I think it was the right thing to do. I think that whenever you have uh, something as as nebulous as that, you don't really know how it's going to affect the business in the short run. When you combine two big entities like that, uh, and and then when you have management say, "Well, this is a transition year." Well, transition year is code for dead money on Wall Street. So people are just short timers are going to bail and go elsewhere. Uh, so that's not surprising to me at all. I th- I think that we still have a business that's going to be very relevant here for the coming uh, decade and beyond. And I think that the uh, sort of the short-term perspective out there in Wall Street could be, you know, an opportunity for investors with a uh, longer timeline. This week, Microsoft announced it plans to cut nearly 8,000 jobs and write down more than seven and a half billion dollars on its Nokia phone handset division. Uh, Ron, the Windows Phone is still around; they're still trying to make a run with that, but the Nokia nightmare appears to be ending. A debacle from the beginning, um, from the Bomber era. Um, Satya Nadella obviously taking the company a completely different direction, focusing on cloud and mobile software. Seven uh, percent of the workforce, you know, it's a significant number, and it was a bigger chunk even last year when when they started this. Um, most of, not most, but a, a, a big chunk of those folks are in Finland. Um, not surprisingly, from the Nokia acquisition, um, but. This is, you know, it's an unfortunate uh, circumstance, but it's the right move. It's mostly non-cash. The eight billion, you won't see that show up. It's not, it's not an actual dollar cash flow out the door. But you know, let's move on. And you know, Microsoft has a bright future ahead of it. Coming up, just because it's earnings season does not mean each business is actually making money. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money.
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Simon Erickson, and Ron Gross. Guys, the container store lost $5 million in the first quarter, and that was still better than Wall Street was expecting, so shares were on the rise this week. I know it wasn't good, Jason, but was it at least encouraging? Hmm. Wow, encouraging apparently is too strong a word. (laughs) Well, okay, so I much rather focus on businesses meeting their expectations versus Wall Street's expectations. So I, I will say they met their expectations and I think that's great. Now the first quarter of the year is notoriously a, a slow one for them and it's only, you know, twenty percent or so of, of, of the business overall on an annualized basis. But I, I mean I do think again, you have to really look at this and say, man, what kind of market opportunity really exists here? Because in the face of a recovering consumer, in the face of really, really great market conditions, in the face of an improving housing market, they are still not growing sales. It's not to say they don't make good products. I'm sure they do. I think I've been to a container store once in my life, and that was about a decade ago. But <laughs> but again, I think that you really have to question the market opportunity for all of the things that they do well, culture-wise and whatever. At the end of the day, we're in this to make money, and I don't know that the container store is the best way to do it. Shares of Pepsi up this week after second quarter sales came in around $16 billion. Profits were higher than expected. This is a pretty good quarter, Simon. Maybe. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, it, it was it good. Sensing from a, a theme for the back half of the show. I, I'm a little bit pessimistic on this one, though, Chris, because I think you can only cut your yourself your way to growth so far. Um, we've seen just a kind of a systematic drop in a, in, in soda beverage consumption uh, in the United States and even abroad for for several years now. You know, Pepsi's st- top line has been stuck either flat or decreasing for four years now, basically. And I think for this quarter, it was actually the snack food side of the business that rescued things. You know, that we saw two percent revenue. Uh, growth from the Frito-Lay side of the business. But, you know, even that, I'm not sure that I would be pinning my future fortunes on the junk food market either. So, I think that, you know, if you've got a couple levers you can pull in food, you know, you can either raise prices, you can raise volumes, you can change the product mix. And I think that's that third one that Pepsi's trying to do, get higher dollar items that are being sold out there to fix this. In the meantime, they're doing cost cutting and returning, um, you know, giving the shareholders, you know, dividends and buybacks in the meantime. But I'm kind of a little pessimistic on the long term. So, you've got Pepsi that essentially diversifies away from what we consider to be just sort of basic soda with snacks. You have Coca-Cola diversifying away from its basic soda with other non-soda beverages. Honest tea. Honest tea and, and, and that sort of thing. Is either one of these going to be a long-term winner, or are they both doomed? I'll tell you what, man. I look at both of them at this point and really don't see an attractive uh, investment thesis. I mean, for the, for the distribution model and the brand power that Coca-Cola has built to date, and really Pepsi to a lesser degree, I like that Pepsi has the salty snacks to kind of fall back on, whereas Coca-Cola doesn't really. I think the growth has more or less been had with these guys, Maybe good from a, from an income perspective, but they're not at the top of my list. Yeah, I agree. Income is pretty decent, and, and the growth will come, but it'll be internationally, if at all, um, and it, it might be um, a little bit less than people are, are hoping for. Guys, before we get to our final story, a couple of housekeeping notes. Uh, if you're listening, you may know about our other podcasts, Market Foolery, Industry Focus, Motley Fool Answers. Happy to announce a brand new weekly podcast from The Motley Fool, Rule Breaker Investing. 
You can find it every Wednesday on iTunes, on Stitcher. It is David Gardner, one of the co-founders of The Motley Fool, best-selling author, successful stock picker. That's putting it mildly, frankly. Best track record of The Motley Fool. Yeah, <laughs> phenomenal guy. track record. Yeah, that guy. Um, so, check it out. Rule Breaker Investing. Uh, it's basically David Gardner's insights and observations about some of the most innovative and disruptive companies out there, really getting at the core of, the, of what Rule Breaker Investing is all about. So, check it out every Wednesday, iTunes, Stitcher, any where you find podcasts. Uh, and secondly, we've got a little Motley Fool Money swag to give away, guys. Wow, you, know, right. you, listen, you listen to Motley Fool Money, now you can show people with our Motley Fool Money stickers you, uh, for your car, your truck, motorcycle, any mode of transportation, Ron. I know what <laughs> really? you're thinking. How do I get one? My son has an electric scooter. <laughs> All he has to do, it's drop like, an email to radio at fool.com. Send us your address. We'll send you a little Motley Fool Money sticker. While supplies last. While supplies Awesome. We'll make more. <laughs> okay. If the demand is there, we will add. We will keep up. We will meet demand. Wow. This is not going to be like a Tesla Motors thing where it's like you order one and you get it six months from now. <laughs> we'll get you the sticker. All right, guys. Final story this week: Mondelez International introduced the newest version of the Oreo cookie. Oreo thins. They are four millimeters thinner. <laughs> they have eighteen fewer calories. And you know what? I'm not betting against them. What do you think here? I just I want to see Nutter Butter Thins. I'm not really the biggest Oreo guy, but this opens up a world of possibilities. And Nutter Butter Thins, I think, are that's the next big thing. We need to, I need to see Nutter Butter Thins, please. I find typically that the thin version of any cookie doesn't actually taste like the cookie. It tastes a little bit off. Okay. So I'm I, I want to have a taste test here. Maybe we can do that on air one day. I'm um, sure that'd make but, for great I mean, radio. Listen, what, they have dozens and dozens <laughs> of different flavors of Oreos. They pretty much all seem to do well. I wouldn't count them out on that's that. What, that's what I was going to say. You're not a fan of Oreos. You are in the minority on this planet. This is. I was looking at some stats. And uh, I'm okay with that. That the, the Washington, <laughs> that the Washington Post put up in a, in a story on this. It was unbelievable. In the United States, basically one out of five dollars spent on cookies in this country. Are spent on Oreos. Have you heard of our weight problem? In this country? <laughs> I mean, this, do, have do, you do, had the Rice Krispie Ori flavored Oreos? The Rice Krispie treat flavored Oreos, not too shabby, really. Wow. So I'm I, hashtag you're you you're welcome Oreo. Hashtag dozens of flavors. Dozens of flavors. That's kind of like our market foolery tagline there. Yeah. Oreos got four one. millimeters thinner. Does that all it takes to be marketed <laughs> this way? I mean, are we fooling ourselves here? Are, is is this of interest to you at all? I I just can't believe they're they're. <laughs> Marking this is a thinner <laughs> Oreo. It's four millimeters thinner. I, I, I bet it's impossible to take apart. You know how some people like to take their Oreos apart and That's need a good the point filling there. first. I think I think you're right about that. And that could be a construction issue. That, <laughs> we need to call them the engineers. It's got to affect the texture, right? It's going to be far crispier. I would imagine. I would imagine. Drop us an email, radio at fool.com. Not just on the sticker, because we'll send you the sticker, but we'd also like your thoughts on this. But uh, as uh, as you were saying, Simon, we're in this to make money. <laughs> Mondelez International <laughs> stock up 37% the last two years. So say what you want about Oreos, but they are moving that stock higher. Eating twice as many now that they're thin. <laughs> there you go. It's a ploy. All right, guys. We'll see you a little bit later in the show. Up next, we will dig into the business of baseball with Berries for Luger from the Washington Post. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. We are halfway through the baseball season and at 162 games, it is the longest season in the sports world. And while exciting at times, baseball is in many ways a grueling sport for those involved. 
A behind-the-scenes look at America's pastime is provided in the brand-new book, The Grind, Inside Baseball's Endless Season. It's written by Barry Zverluga of The Washington Post, and he joins me now from across the Potomac River in Washington, D.C. Barry, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris, for having me. I appreciate it. You've written about what the season, the endless season, is like for everyday players, starting pitchers, scouts, team executives, family members, and while you follow the Washington Nationals, this really could be about any of the 30 teams in Major League Baseball, couldn't it? Yeah, these these characters are represented in, in every single franchise. And I, I kind of got the idea for the book really not through covering baseball as much, but, but by stepping away and, and covering uh, the NFL for a few years, um, you know, the NFL just has this reputation as being a, a rel- physically relentless and violent sport, which it certainly is. Um, but what strikes you when you've covered both of them is that um, for all the violence and, and the toll on the players' bodies in, in football, um, there's a six-day recovery period, and, and there are many, many players who don't practice during the week or take a day or two of practice off um, so that they can let their bodies recover as they should. And there's just there is not that room to breathe in a baseball season. It, it can be suffocating um, because every single day there is a performance and every single day there are failures and those failures are public. Um, so yes, this is a, a book um, with characters that come from the Nationals, but I think people can read it and, and think about those players on the team or those people on the team that they root for and, and really you know, relate it to every single franchise. I want to get into a couple of the people in a minute, but first, you've covered sports for 20 years. You're not some wide-eyed kid just coming out of the wilderness. Did anything surprise you, though, when you were working on this? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that was part of the reason to, to pursue the stories. Um, it was not to show how a player goes two for five with a homer and a stolen base. It, it was really to show what gets them to that point. So I think that the more surprising um, elements were in chapters on, on like, the wife. Uh, I chose Ian Desmond's wife. He's the shortstop of the Nationals. He's a guy who plays every day who had kind of a typical baseball upbringing in that he was drafted out of high school and spent several years in the minors uh, when his then-girlfriend was kind of tagging along behind the bus and driving from Lynchburg, Virginia, to... Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and staying in an adjacent hotel room. And um, now they have three kids, and um, she is really, uh, uh, Chelsea Desmond is a um, kind of a a jack-of-all-trades. While Ian is grinding through his season, um, she's got to change the kids' sleeping habits and get them to the ballpark and figure out where to live in in, um, Washington when their home is actually in Florida, um, the responsibilities, and, and I don't know that I want to say burdens, because obviously there are benefits to, to being married to a, a professional athlete, um, but it is a much different life than I think people would would guess that wives of, of a baseball player had, uh, would have. And I also say would say the scout, uh, in this case Chris Klein, these guys, they live lives that no one can imagine with, with night after night in hotels and flights and um, and drives long drives to see to obscure places to see out of the way players in the hopes that they're going to stumble upon a, a major leaguer in the fifteenth round in the draft. Um, th- those two characters kind of um, 
brought the most surprises to me, but I, th- I would say there were surprises in reporting every chapter. I love the focus on scouting and it's scouting, as you, as you indicate, sort of the way we think about traditional scouting in baseball. But with the advent of Moneyball, I'm curious, where do advanced metrics fit in and, and how much tension is there, whether it's for the Nationals or any organization, between the analytics, the data, and just sort of the, the traditional sort of gut feeling? I think it really depends on the organization. An organization like, I mean, if you bring up Moneyball, we're always going to think about the A's. Um, you know, they were on the forefront um, of incorporating some of that advanced data, but I think each organization kind of uses that stuff differently. Um, some push it to the side more than more than others. The general manager of the Nationals is Mike Rizzo. He came up as a scout. He was an area scout. He believes in his eye over the numbers every single time. But he also understands that it would be irresponsible to have information available and not pay attention to it at all. Um, So even in a very scout-based organization like the Nationals, um, there is an analytics department. Those uh, folks are used in every transaction, um, particularly when preparing to make trades or pursue free agents. Um, Mike Rizzo is going to turn to his scouts and consider his own opinion, what his eye sees first, but he's going to look to see whether the numbers back that up or not. Um, uh, But again, it's different in each organization, depending kind of on um, where the GM stands, what his background is, uh, and all that kind of stuff. You know, Mike, you mentioned Mike Rizzo, the general manager. That was one of the parts of the book that got me thinking about sort of what we do here at The Motley Fool in, in looking at public companies, because public companies have to balance uh, short-term results and long-term planning. And the general manager of a baseball team, I mean, that's one of the things that's so uh, wonderfully illustrated in your book, is just how he's trying to balance a team that is trying to win this year right now, while at the same time he's thinking about what is the roster going to be in 2016? Who are going to be the free agents in 2017? I, I, I really don't know how he pulls something like that off. Yeah, it, it, that was an interesting part, too. Um, it, you ask about surprises, I, and I don't know. I guess it makes sense when you think about uh, a general manager having to make sure that he's taking care of the the, um, the franchise for the, for the long term and balancing those two uh, goals against each other with, short-term success and long-term viability, but the depth um, that he thinks about those things and the amount of time he spends thinking about a one-year plan, a three-year plan, and a five-year plan, um, and that is not just within your own organization. It's also understanding who's going to come to the marketplace uh, three years down the road, what free agents you might pursue um, at that time. If you have people going out out the door, what are the possibilities both within your own organization and from the outside that might come in to replace them? Um, it's, it's described in the book uh, by Stan Kasten, um, who was the former president of the Nationals and now runs the Dodgers as, as three-dimensional chess, and, and I think that's a, a, a good way of thinking about it because the fan sits in his or her seat at the ballpark that night and thinks, you know, Jordan Zimmerman is having a very good season um, I, I think that we should be able to keep him with the Washington Nationals uh, and sign him to a very long contract. Um, that is not the snapshot that a general manager is thinking of. It's a much more complex equation. 
I also like the fact that in the age of Moneyball, when so much is driven by data, there are still baseball players who have their routines, they have their superstitions, and they clearly matter a great deal. And all you have to do is read about Drew Storen, the relief pitcher, who, did I read this correctly? He basically has the exact same meal every day at Chipotle? Yeah, he did. Last year he did. He's changed it up this year. I can't remember what he told me uh, where he goes now, but he he would go when the team was home um, to Chipotle at, not at, uh, he called it his breakfast, but his breakfast was at like 1230 or 1 p.m. before he went to the ballpark, and he'd get um, a barbacoa uh, quesarito, which is like a, a, a burrito wrapped but with the, not a normal wrapper. The wrapper was actually a quesadilla. It was like a, 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 it was like a mini Cooper, um, and so he. Uh, but part of, particularly for a closer, but for any baseball player, um, it was very important for him to stay in the same routine, regardless of whether he had success or he had failed the night before, because he needs to recreate that um, that mon- almost monotony, so that uh, he's not approaching things differently the day after um, he blew a save. He's not walking into the um, clubhouse with his chest puffed out if he saved 10 in a row or crestfallen um, if uh, he had blown a couple saves in a row. And this is a guy who knows failure, knows failure in, in the biggest times in, in the playoffs. Um, but they, they do not want to get out of... I mean, you're, you're right, they're, they're, they're humans. And for all the talk of numbers and, and that you know we, know, we can know... We can predict the future because we know what the numbers are from the past. Um, these guys have emotions. Their emotions matter. How they handle themselves matter. Um, it all plays into performance, probably more than the numbers could possibly tell us. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Barry's Verluga of the Washington Post. His new book is The Grind, Inside Baseball's Endless Season. Major League Baseball is a $9 billion industry, so let's talk a little bit about the business of baseball one of the big challenges that Major League Baseball had recently was the game was just slow. Uh, they've made some efforts to try and speed the game up. Are those working? You know, they are. And I think to the surprise and delight of um, even the people that instituted them, um, I talked earlier in the year to John Scherholz, the former um, Atlanta Braves general manager uh, and current team president there, who was uh, – chaired the committee um, that was formed by the former commissioner, Bud Selig, on, on how to speed up the, the game. And, and really, when you ask baseball people to fix baseball, that's a very difficult thing because they're in the game because they love the game and they don't easily recognize the problems. Um, but because it was baseball people that were tasked with this uh, over the winter, um, they went to snip away at the non-baseball parts. Um, they wanted to get away from some of the dead time. Um, so... They asked batters to keep one foot in the batter's box uh, in between pitchers if they hadn't fouled off a ball. They um, they asked pitchers to be ready immediately when the TV timeout ended between innings, so they, they um, decreased the wait time in between innings. And what we found is these little snips here and there that affect the action not at all uh, have average game times down about nine minutes um, at this point uh, in the season, which is really a significant um, development. Uh, games are lasting less than three hours where they've spilled into like 302 at the end of last year. So um, some small things have made a pretty significant change. When it comes to 
television ratings for sports programming, and there is an ever-increasing amount of money being thrown at sports programming. The Super Bowl is basically a lock. If you're a network getting the rights to the Super Bowl, you know you're going to get a big number in terms of the audience, because it almost doesn't matter who's playing in the game. The NBA Finals recently were a big hit for the ratings, but you had LeBron James, the best player in the world, playing against the team with the best record during the regular season. It seems like baseball has the highest level of risk, because if it ends up that small market teams like the Kansas City Royals and the Pittsburgh Pirates end up in the World Series, then Fox, who has the rights to the World Series, is stands to lose a lot of money. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting um, kind of dynamic because there's there's more money in the game than ever before. As you said, it's a nine billion dollar industry. Um, but what really is driving that? Uh, it's almost against the the NFL model, which is these big national television contracts that have um, pumped more money into that sport than uh, we've ever known before. Um, baseball's local television contracts are really um, the most important financial aspect of any franchise, uh, a team that is not deriving a lot of money from um, their local media uh, deals is not going to have as much to spend um, on payroll. Um, the national, you know, World Series ratings are are kind of infamously down, um, you know, as, a, as an overall trend over the past quarter of a century. Um, and I'm not sure that that ever will turn back, that there will be uh, a time when the Tampa Bay Rays could could play the Colorado Rockies in a World Series, and it wouldn't matter. Um, the franchises uh, are going to matter in, in that case. The market sizes are going to matter for those national ratings. And I will say that I think one thing that baseball has struggled with, um, that the NBA has excelled at, is is really marketing their own stars, their biggest stars. LeBron James, um, you know, a lot of people thought, of him playing in the finals, that he was the most important character. It was LeBron James and Steph Curry, and the teams that they were on were, were secondary. Baseball doesn't have that kind of dynamic, in part because, you know, even if everybody wants to see Bryce Harper play, well, he's only going to have four at-bats a night. You have to kind of, the appointment TV element of it is every third inning or every second or third inning. It's not a guy playing 45 out of 48 minutes. So it's an inherently different structure to have your stars participating in, and I think that's hurt baseball and its ability to kind of market the the foremost players um, that they have to offer. All right, we got about a minute left. So before I let you go, this is a national radio show, but I work with a lot of Washington national fans, so i got to ask you, what do you think happens for this team this year? Do you think they get to the World Series? And if so, is that enough? I'm curious what success looks like if they fall short of winning the whole thing. So I think, um, I mean, I'll take a half cop out on that. I think that they will win the uh, National League East running away. I think they're clearly the best team in the division, which is probably now the worst division um, in the sport. Um, they're in first place uh, in July um, with half, you know, very, very significant members of their team hurt and, and having been hurt. So um, that part, I think, is easy to predict. I think what we know about the baseball playoffs are, is that they are the least predictable playoffs if you consider the NBA and the, and the NFL. Um, home field advantage doesn't matter as much. Uh, no one expected 
the San Francisco Giants to win in any of the years that they've won, and they have three World Series titles in the last five years. So um, it's a cop-out to say that the baseball playoffs are, are a crapshoot, but that's also exactly uh, what they are. And in terms of success, um, I, they have to win a playoff series. I, I don't think that the goal should be much um, beyond that because they've they've gotten in twice in the last three years and failed to even advance to the National League Championship Series. So so there's your Nationals minute for you to cop out on you. The book is The Grind, Inside Baseball's Endless Season. It is the perfect summer read for any baseball fan, and it's available everywhere books are sold. Barry Zverluga, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio once again, Jason Moser, Simon Erickson, and Ron Gross. Guys, just a couple of minutes to get to the stocks on our radar this week. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at? I got Stage Stores, SSI. It's just a new deep value radar stock for me. It's not a recommendation. 850 specialty department stores in 40 states, mostly in the south, uh, southern U.S., names like Goodies, People's Stage Department Stores. First quarter was weak. Stock got slammed. It's trading like a deep value stock, but I really have some work to do. Retail is a tough, tough business, so caution's warranted here, but I'm digging in. All right, we'll wrap up the show so you can get to work. Simon, <laughs> what are you looking at? Well, Chris, Jason says don't invest in China, and Ron says China might be in a bubble, so I'm going to give you a Chinese tech company. Nice. <laughs> Uh, my company, stock of my radar this week is Baidu, ticker B-I-D-U. This is throwing the baby out with the bathwater from all of the carnage that's happened in the Chinese stock market. Baidu is a solid company. They're the country's leading search engine, uh, similar to Google here in the States. They've got half a million advertisers and an average of 16000 U.S. dollars per advertiser that they spend on Baidu. I expect both of those to increase in the coming years. It's going to be very good for business. That's one to watch. Jason Moser, we got a minute left. What are you looking at this week? Sure thing. I think Simon threw this out there a couple of weeks ago, maybe, but Viva Systems, ticker is V-E-E-V. Uh, so, let the Elvis jokes roll. And uh, they, they provide uh, cloud, cloud-based software services for the life uh, sciences industry. And this is just a really neat business because they're they're bringing up sort of a fragmented industry that has that not really made a, a great move to the cloud. Uh, a lot of regulation involved there with all these big pharma companies and whatnot. And so, Viva, uh, very similar to sort of Ellie May in the regard that I think they allow the customers to sort of build a relationship. And over time, as that relationship grows, the switching costs grow, I think they'll be able to exercise a little pricing power down the road. Founder-led, uh, founder-led business here, and it's one that Simon just brought over to our watch list in MDP. All right, Jason Moser, Ron Gross, Simon Erickson. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Steve Broido is under the weather this week, so fortunately we've got Rick Engdahl helping us out behind the glass. Our producer, Matt Greer, is on vacation, so if the show's terrible, we were flying (laughs) blind. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.